going to read you a portion of what we'll cover this morning. We'll pick it up where we left off, and that is in verse 20, Luke 20, 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. You do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, What do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words, in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God and being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Such is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've titled this morning's message, The Final Exchange. This is the last real encounter uh, on a public exchange that Jesus will have with the establishment. They have sent some of their representatives, some of the Herodians, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to confront him uh, in an attempt to uh, disgrace him publicly and to trap him in his speech as we've read there so that they might present him to Rome and prosecute him, possibly put him to death. You know, this morning we're going to cover five things in our text this morning. Um, One of our favorite, or maybe least favorite subjects, 
death and taxes. <laughs> As Ben Franklin said, there's nothing certain but death and taxes, right? Uh, but there are a few more things that are certain, are there not? <laughs> like the second coming of Jesus. I would say that's pretty certain, wouldn't you? Um, the judgment seat of Christ, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's a certainty. The resurrection of the dead, as we've read here. You know, it's kind of funny that Jesus faced the same question, you know, of death and taxes. It's somewhat humorous, but the, these guys approach him. Uh, as I said, they were disciples of the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they address him, teacher. Now, this is not rabbi uh, here. This is the word diaskalus, uh, and it's simply the one who instructs. Now, they could not bring themselves to call Jesus rabbi uh, because the rabbi was used in the first century uh, differently than it's used today. It's now for those who have their, their doctorate and uh, Jewish people, their uh, theologians and all, uh, that's sort of reserved on, uh, in the modern day level. But back then it, was, it wasn't at that level. It was just an, a high honor to be called a rabbi. They refer to John the Baptist as a rabbi. He was a powerful anointed teacher of God. And, uh, but they couldn't bring themselves, the establishment could not bring themselves to, to recognize Jesus uh, as a rabbi. So uh, they used the lesser word here, teacher, because they disrespected him. They didn't respect the anointing that was upon him as the Messiah. And, uh, but there were those, uh, not all of the establishment was crooked and perverse. There were some sincere guys. Remember Nicodemus in chapter 3 recognized him, and he called him rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God, because nobody could do the things that yeah, you're doing except God be with him. So that not all of them were blind and not all of them were wicked. But we see here in our text this morning the enemy's tactics. They wanted to present Jesus in reality as an enemy of the state because if we can do that, then we can get Rome to do our dirty work for us, you know. And what tool do they use? They use flattery. And the enemy often does that. Of course, we are, are familiar with, with flattery. It's that insincere and excessive praise uh, with a hidden intention. And, uh, of course, Jesus saw right through this. Uh, on the other hand, you know, um, it's important that we express appreciation. You know, just because you're uh, telling someone or appreciating what they're doing doesn't mean you're flattering them. Uh, you're simply recognizing their good qualities and you are expressing maybe some gratitude that uh, they're part of your life and or for the things that they may have done. But flattery is really actually of um, the beginnings and the formings of manipulation. And we all understand manipulation. We hate it uh, because it, it's taking away uh, the choice. It leaves the person who's being manipulated uh, without uh, other options than the ones that are being presented by the manipulator. And uh, it's a verbal way to control and lead people uh, to their own ends. And so flattery is often used with manipulation to trap someone. And this is exactly what they were uh, trying to do, gain control over Jesus. Uh, and as we know, look, manipula manipulation isn't beneficial to anybody. It's only it's only advantageous to the person who's doing it. And, it, and it's the, the last thing... Uh, we want to do for those who are uh, 
under that assault from someone who is trying to manipulate is to let them do it. It's like giving them more poison. It's a terrible thing. Now you might say, well, what about when you know somebody's doing something wrong and you try to persuade them? Well, persuasion is different than manipulation. You're just trying, in persuasion, you're just simply trying to help a person come to maybe a logical conclusion that this might be a better option or this might be a better direction. But the point, the difference between the two is with persuasion, you're leaving them with the freedom of choice. And manipulation takes away that choice. It's force, force. And the enemy, Satan, always works by force. That's one of his tactics. And so they're presenting this flattery, this manipulation, if you were. We know that you're true, Jesus. I mean, it's not hard to pick up on manipulation or flattery, is it? You teach the truth. You don't show any partiality. You know, we know you don't have respect of persons. But they were pretentious. They were just looking for him uh, to slip up, as it were, because they wanted to uh, deliver him. They were sick of him. They didn't want him around. Now remember, these people in the establishment, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of them, they considered Jesus demon-possessed. He was doing these incredible miracles and works by the power of Beelzebub. And so they had no respect for him. And so for them to come on like this was just a trap. It was the you know, divide-and-conquer tactic. You know. Here's the idea. You know, if we can get him to... You speak against Rome and Caesar, well, then, of course, we, can, we know that there's a bunch of zealots around here that hate Rome, and so we can get him you know, divided among the people who are in love with him and want him to be the Messiah and all. We can't have that, so you know, uh, let's approach it this way. And so if he goes along with paying taxes to Caesar, well, then the zealots and some of the people are going to resent him for that. And then on the other hand, if you take away uh, his ability to give to God, then, well, then you've got the religious people that are going to be messed up. So it's a, a pretty sly, crafty way to trap Christ. But does anybody have more discernment? Has anybody really have the ability to manipulate God? <laughs> Who do these people think they are? The arrogance and the unmitigated gall these leaders to approach Jesus in such a way. And so Christ perceives their insincerity and he, again, the wisdom of God is so amazing. I mean, I don't think any man would have thought of this answer in a thousand years. You would, would you happen to have a coin? <laughs> and that tells you something, doesn't it? Jesus didn't even have any money with him. And uh, he wasn't going to be trapped. And it's just a, a lesson here. It's impossible for us to manipulate God. You know, we can't work God to our own ends. Not possible. Um, and then verses 27 through 40, as we read there, the death issue. You know, is there life after death? The Sadducees, the liberals of the day, uh, mocked this. And, of course, what's the best way to answer people when it comes to the questions that are presented? I can give people my opinion, but my opinion really doesn't matter that much in reality. What matters is what God has said about an issue. So when you're 
you know, conversing with your friends and, and they, or maybe the antagonist people at work that know you're a believer and don't really believe in God like you do and they sort of find fault with the Bible and Christians and all that kind of thing. Uh, when they ask you questions, the best way to do is just answer them with Scripture. That's what Jesus did. And this is an example for us. Moses wrote. You know, so they're bringing about this hypothetical uh, situation that was actually uh, the Leverite uh, principle uh, that Moses wrote about on prolonging um, inheritance within the nation of Israel. If a brother would uh, die, then the other brother would marry his wife, the widow, and uh, continue the, his brother's line. And so they're mocking that. Uh, they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were liberal. Uh, anybody these days understands uh, there are many people who uh, think when you die, that's it. You cease to exist. What a big surprise they're in for. But, you know, this is not the way it is. Uh, we continue to exist. The body dies, but the real you, the soul and the spirit go on. Uh, as we'll see here in a minute. But this, they're using this hypothetical story. Uh, and, of course, this is one of the arguments that the Pharisees and Sadducees had with each other. The Pharisees, were, for the most part, were, were sound doctrinally. They were just legalists. And so they had a lot of uh, more going for them, so to speak, because they did understand the word and had more of a, a fundamental approach uh, to the kingdom and things, but they were still blind to the truth and, and were hypocritical in application, as we'll also see a little bit later here. So, but we learn a few things here. Um, the, uh, the program of God is broken up into ages. Uh, in this age, the one that we're presently in, uh, People die, uh, and then they go on to, to, to another state, uh, but at some point in time, uh, the dead are going to be raised, we, we learn, um, and it, that state of existence will be much different than uh, we're now experiencing, and Jesus, again, uses the scripture to prove uh, on uh, the eternalness of man's nature. Uh, the, the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were in paradise at that time and uh, waiting the resurrection. Jesus, in his ministry, talked about the resurrection in John chapter 5. He said, do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which those who are in the grave will hear a voice Come forth, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. To those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. And then John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This, we're just passing through. This is not our home. Isn't that great? I don't know about you. I'm kind of happy about that. If this was all there was to life's existence, then I would be very disappointed. But there's more. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that great? That's one of the reasons I felt the Lord uh, had me read that scripture about the throne. 
We're going to see, we're going to see God sitting on the throne, that unapproachable light. In our new bodies, we're going to be able to approach that. We'll be able to enter into the throne room, the very presence of God. That's what's awaiting us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an awesome hope? So that's the age-old question, is it not? Job refers to uh, death as the king of terrors. So, you know, what happens when we die? You know, this is, you know, not something... um, I mean, I can't say for sure because I haven't died and experienced it, right? <laughs> but I can go with what the Scripture says, right? And, and, and that's really what we have to go on. Job 14, 14 says this, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. It's always believed that there is going to be life after this life. Uh, the Bible tells us that we are eternal beings. Now, there are funny people who mock this. Uh, One of them, one of the comedians has said, you know, he didn't really mind the thought of dying. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. Well, get used to disappointment, you know, because you're going to be there when it happens, right? But uh, the body does go back to the earth and the spirit and the soul, the immaterial part of our being goes on to be with the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So we're all going to see the Lord at some point in time. Now, for those of you who take notes and are really interested in this one, which you should be, God is... uh, through the Apostle Paul, arranged a nice chapter for us. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. And it's a great chapter. It's how the body is going to be raised. It's what form the body will take. It's the final victory. Death, where is your sting? Right? Grave, where is your victory? And so uh, you can look that up uh, if you'd like on your own for the sake of time. It's uh, the latter part. Gets the answers to those questions, 1535 through 58, uh, a lot to cover there. But as you uh, have, if you're familiar with this text here, the, in Matthew 22, the parallel passage to what we've read here, this is sort of a truncated version that Jesus, or Luke gives us of Jesus' interaction in his final exchange with the establishment, and he rebukes them for their ignorance. You do err not knowing the scriptures. That is one of the biggest mistakes that believers can make. If you really are professing to be a Christian, then you should have a good working knowledge of the scriptures. And, it, you know, it, if you'll give five minutes a day to anything over the course of your life, you'll probably become an expert at it. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but it's true. Just think about, if you'll just give five minutes to anything of your choice, you can become very good at it. A little bit here, a little bit there, and it's just the way we're built. And I would challenge you in this coming year to get you a good Bible program, you know, some way of making it through the Scriptures. If you've never read through the entire Bible, you need to do that. You need to know the Word of God. You need to know why you believe and where it is 
in the Bible so that you can substantiate what you believe when someone asks you for the hope that you have. Well, why do you believe that? Where's that written? Because a lot of people, if you notice, well, the Bible says, and they're totally out of context, and they have no idea what they're talking about. And how powerful it is when a Christian say, oh, hold on, I know what you're referring to, but let's, so let's go to what you're referring to. And you lay it out, and they have, it, it's very convicting. It gives the Holy Spirit something to work with in their lives. So encourage you to give yourself to the five minutes a day next year, every day, to the Word of God. The problem today is we have a lot of liberal pastors who neither believe what they profess. They're, they're really not much different than some of these guys. I mean, I'm hearing you know, these liberal pastors talk about how, how uh, really we don't, even, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. That's like so archaic and outdated that we'll just stick to the New Testament and let's just stick to the Paul's letters to the churches. Well, that's good. And I'm all for applying the letters of the churches that Paul wrote, you know, applying that to our lives. But I find that what's in the Old Testament is substantiated in the New Testament. You know, the, Old Te- the New Testament's the Old Testament revealed. The New Testament's the Old Testament concealed, and it's there, you know, there, we need both of them. The Word of God is quick and powerful, right? It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and it's important that we study the Word and know the Word. That's why we have Calvary Chapels, because we're here, we're into teaching the Word of God book by book. The problem with the liberal approaches that I've mentioned is that they have become the judges of the Bible. Rather than allowing the Word of God to judge their heart and their character and their motives, they become the judges of what's there. Well, you know, if Jesus would have known what we know today, that would be the end of that conversation with me. Really? You know more than Jesus? Sorry. So, these men who were ignorant of the Scriptures, which... They shouldn't have been. Jesus presents to them a question. You want to question me in your hypocritical way? Verse 41, he said to them, how can they say that Christ is the son of David? How David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord, How is he then his son? Isn't that a great question? He's not manipulating them. He's not flattering them. Hey, I got a question for you guys. It's very simple. Whose son is the Messiah? Now they've heard the crowd, the triumphant entry, right? Hosanna to the son of David. They've heard Jesus being addressed for the last three and a half years by the multitudes and the people. Son of David. Everybody knew that the coming Messiah would be the offspring of David. Well, wait. If that's true, Jesus said, how can the Son be his Lord? That's a good question. He cites Psalm 110, verse 1. And so 
he's calling, David is calling the person Lord who sits at Jehovah's right hand. And so these men who were of the scripture, who were the gatekeepers, understood that Psalm 110 was clearly messianic. But they're not, they're trapped. He's now trapped them in their own theology. How are they going to answer? This is a public display. You've come to humiliate me through your manipulation and your flattery. And so just, you know, straight up, guys, what do you think? I love it. You know, those who seek to shame you will be put to shame. And that's the way it works. You and I as Christians have nothing to be ashamed. He says to those who love him, I'll not allow you to be put to shame. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed of our position as Christians. We should be as bold as lions. And part of having that boldness is knowing your Savior and knowing his word. And so, what's the answer to the question? And they were they knew it, but they couldn't bring themselves to it. How is it that David would call his son the Lord? It could only happen through the incarnation. And they were not willing to admit it. And he was holding that generation accountable for that knowledge. They should have known that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, was going to be God himself in the flesh. The, the New Testament writers, Paul, John, Peter, others, they understood the deity of Christ. We'll start with that. Paul identified Jesus as divine in 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, he said, I don't want you to be unaware that all the fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate that same spiritual food and all drank that of the same spiritual rock or drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. And so we see Jesus in action as it were in the writings of Moses. Exodus 17, 5 if you're taking notes would be one to substantiate what he was referring to. We refer to this over and over, I think I hit it last week, actually, um, Genesis 48, 3, verse 15, verse 16, speaking of the angel of the Lord, who is Yahweh, the physical appearance of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, Judges 2, we won't go through those again, but you should know them. That's good working knowledge of the scriptures to identify Jesus in the Old Testament. John's gospel uh, we have this phrase that we all love and appreciate, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14, right? And the Word became flesh. Where do you think John got that phrase from? Oh, that just really sounds cool. I kind of like Jesus calling the Messiah the Word. Did you think he just made that up? No. You find that in the Old Testament. John, or Genesis 15, 1 through 5, we mentioned that I think last week. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Jeremiah 1, 4, the word came to me. 
First Samuel, when he's the little boy, the word came to Samuel. You know, this is the angel of the Lord appearing in the Old Testament to reveal God's word and message to the prophets and the judges so that they could speak on his behalf to the people. And so this should not come as a shock. It should not have been a shock for these, the establishment, the gatekeepers, to recognize that Messiah would truly be God come in the flesh. He wasn't just one of David's sons, another human being, right? He's the root and offspring of David, according to Revelation 16. So this is all throughout the scriptures. And because of their hypocrisy, in verses 45 through 47, I told you we we're going to look at taxes and death and the Messiah's identity, but also how important it is when we claim to be Christians that we re- represent God and we image him as best we can. And this is what Jesus is now warning. He says in verse 45, Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. Now, if you want an elongated version of this, this is unmatched by anything ever said to these guys, it would be Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes, hypocrites. I mean, he just lambasted them. And this is really what got him crucified. (laughs) If you read through that chapter, and he just absolutely unloads AR-15 style, just just blitzes and tells them the truth uh, and who they really are. Um, Their desire to uh, flaunt their position with their clothing, their long robes. They wanted to be noticed loving the greetings in the marketplaces. Rabbi, Rabbi, you can pick all this up in, in uh, Matthew 23. The best seats in the synagogues, the best places at the feast, you know, as we've read there. You know, the, this is all uh, pretentious living, using religion. And this is why so many people have been turned off by God. Well, I don't want to go to church. I heard this one, you know, in fact, I used this as an excuse before I became a Christian. Well, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to that church. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. I was the biggest sinner and hypocrite there ever was, right? I'm just, who am I to call them? At least they're trying, apparently trying to do something about it <laughs> by going to church, right? You know, what is a hypocrite? The Greek word simply means actors. Now, we can tell when people are pretentious and they're just acting, and, and uh, those who really love the Lord aren't acting. And those who really love the Lord have come to understand who they are. And you find out who you are when you walk with God. You find out that he's God and you're not, and you humble yourself before him. And when you make mistakes, you own it. And you walk with him. And, he gets to, and that's not being hypocritical. That's just being honest with who you are and transparent. But these guys are going to receive a greater judgment for their hypocrisy. They didn't practice what they preached. They were not faithful in their service to God. Uh, They added not only to the word of God, which is a no-no, what Jesus referred to as the tradition of the elders, and made that equivalent to to God's word. They laid heavy burdens on the people. 
which they themselves would not do. And they love to show off. And it's just really sad uh, when you're in a position of leadership. This is the very present danger for Christian leaders today. We have to be very careful uh, to practice what we preach. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. We know that. God's made provisions for our failures through the blood of the cross. It's a matter of just applying it and being real about your failures. Um, We have to be willing to do what we tell others that they should be doing, right? There's no showing off, showboating on the pulpit. I mean, I look at some of the stuff, and I can't even watch it. I don't bother watching TV anymore. But over the years that I've watched these people on TV showboating and you know, sweating and, you know, walking and prancing. Or I just, I can't handle it. I just, it's just really, I just, it's just not real to me. And of course, if I'm judgmental, Lord, please forgive me. But it just doesn't seem right uh, to draw attention to yourself when you're, as a minister of God, you're there to serve the people. And um, I think there's a misunderstanding of ministry. Um, What did Jesus say? The Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give himself a ransom for others. And, you know, the apostles were getting caught up in that. The disciples were getting caught up in that, you know. And even right at the last hour of Christ's ministry on earth, who's the greatest among them? Of course, Peter is. Of course, Peter is. Well, they're like just... No, you're not. Peter, Jesus is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Matthew 20, 26 reads this way, yet it shall not be among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the, what a pastor is all about. You so many in the ministry today are there thinking they're there to be served by the people. How f- the word minister is deacon, it one who serves. The pastors are to be the greatest servant within the church, not the one being pampered and taken care of. And so may God help us. May God help me uh, be a servant. And then Jesus, in this paragraph, uh, which we call chapter 21, 1 through 4, ends on the issue and subject of giving. How God sees giving and the perspective is sometimes startling. Verse, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, as we finish here. And he looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting into mites. And so he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all. And for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all her livelihood that she had. Wow. And when Jesus talks about giving, I think it's something we ought to be paying attention to. Because I think he's got a bigger insight and understanding about giving than we do. I think what we can ascertained from this is pretty straightforward we give what we have god doesn't expect you to give something you don't have and this is something that's really again i refer to these modern day charlatans who want people to 
just use their visa and their credit cards to give to the church. You know, give like you really want to, you've always wanted to give, you know, and, and send in a love offering. You know, just use your credit card. Well, that's giving somebody else's money. That's not giving your money. So that's not really something that should be done. And a woe unto the pastors who encourage people to do that. You give from what you have. Um, we're to give out of our abundance. And this would be uh, normally uh, a normal thing for rich people. Now, none of us in this room would consider ourselves rich, probably. I, it's none of my business. Who, who you, you might be rich, and I don't know anything about it. I could, you know, and I don't need to know. Um, but the whole idea uh, is, if you're rich and you give to the work of the ministry, uh, that's normal. You give out of your abundance. Um, but we can also, according to Jesus, give out a sacrificial love as this woman. Um, and that's likely those who are poor, who are on the lower scale, income scale, uh, who give. That's sacrificial. And you know, So the Lord's pers- perspective is pretty ill. It's not how much you give, it's how much you have left over after you do give, right? I mean, that's essentially what it comes down to. And I, I think it's important that you... E- Learn how to be givers. Give back a portion. Uh, he mentions that in Corinthians chapter six, First Corinthians sixteen. Uh, let every man give as he's purposed in his heart. You know, you examine uh, what God's been doing, how God's been providing, and uh, you come to a conclusion in your own heart after praying about it and bringing it before the Lord. You know, and and then however you've purposed, that's how you give, and just be consistent in doing so. Um, I want to read this and end with uh, these scriptures that I think it's very important because I think giving is very important in our lives. None of us can outgive God. I like to say, as a farm boy, God's got a bigger shovel than I do. You know, if I shovel it in, out, He's going to shovel it in, right? He's you cannot give the Lord. He's very generous. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians. He's talking about the offering that's going to be taken up by members of the church throughout Macedonia there because there's been a, uh, as it were, a famine in Judea in the church uh, in Jerusalem. The, you know, the people, are, the church members are really hurting because of the famine. And so to unify the church, Jew and Gentile, Paul came up with the idea that, you know, if the Gentile churches that had been planted by his ministry would each donate a little bit, and then the elders and the leaders of the church would take that money and make the trek to Jerusalem during Passover, they could present that gift uh, to the church there and bless the members and show the love of God to them that we're one body in Christ. We love you guys. We know you're going through a tough time right now, and Here's what we can do to help. And this is sort of the uh, context of what we read here. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, uh, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. But I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written. He who has dispersed abroad, he who has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession of the gospel of Christ, for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that's really what it comes down to. And that's really kind of where I would like to end this morning. Think about the indescribable gift of Christ. Could God possibly have given you and I any more than he gave us in the person of Jesus Christ? When, G when God gave us his son to hang on that cross and provide atonement for our sins, when he gave Christ, he gave the best. And then out of the Father's love for the Son, he gave you and I as his inheritance. Jesus is going to inherit the nations. He's going to inherit us as his children, his family. And do you know what your inheritance is? Him. Isn't that amazing? The indescribable gift of God. If it was the life, it was the death of Christ that brought about the reconciliation of the human race to himself. If, if, if that's what happened, how much more? This is what Paul is communicating at the end of chapter 8 in Romans. You can pick it up in verse 31 in that neighborhood. If the death of Christ reconciled us to God, how much more will God display his heart of love and grace and goodness towards us that Christ now lives? Isn't that an amazing thing? I want you to take that as a hope for this coming year. What does God want to grace you with? How does God want to display his grace through your life? How would you want to use me this coming year, Lord? How can I become a gift to the body of Christ? This is what servants do. We present ourselves. We lay our lives down. Greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. Amen? Shall we stand? Father, we are so grateful for these great and precious promises in your word. We ask, Lord, and we have given you permission, Lord, to so work in our lives in these coming days, in this coming year, to transform us, that we image you properly as the best we can, to make others Come to know you, Lord, and that others will see your life in us. We thank you for your mercy. 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your everlasting patience with us, Lord. We pray for the growth of our church, Father, that you'll help us to mature and become a powerful witness in this community. Help us to grow. Help us to mature, Lord, and become all that you desire us to be. Bless your people as we go out, as we fellowship today, as we sup together, Lord. May you bless that meal, and may you bless our fellowship with one another. We give you our day, and we give you this coming year, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.